The way we take care of ourselves is ever evolving. And what we know for sure is that our mind and spirit are linked to our physical body and that our wellness seems to extend into our communities and the planet we all share. It is very, very clear that wellness is interconnected. We love spending time with you to explore and practice the breakthroughs, the insights, and the passions of incredible people helping us all see the world in a whole new light. This is HealthGig. Dora and I are thrilled to share this conversation today with Marianne Williamson, who's joining us on HealthGig. You may know Marianne as an author. She has published over 15 books. She's also the person that's most affiliated with The Course of Miracles. And one of her most famous quotes that we hear over and over again is one that Dora and I share a lot in our lectures, and that is this. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? So Marianne, welcome to HealthGig. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're just thrilled to have you with us, Marianne. I appreciate that so much. I'm really, really glad to be here. We know you're from Houston. I'm from Houston as well. And we want to just hear a little bit about your growing up. Your grandparents were immigrants, I think. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your family. Well, all four of my grandparents were immigrants. They came through Ellis Island, the pretty traditional story. My father's father had a particularly interesting time. His name was Vishnavitsky, and he came through Ellis Island twice. They said, what's your name? He said, Vishnavitsky. They said, turn around, go back. And he was a worker on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. He was an Anglophile. And there was a railroad car that said, Alan Williamson, Liverpool. So the third time he came, when they asked him his name, he went, Williamson. And they went, okay, go over there. So that was a lot to do with prejudice at that time. Where was the Trans-Siberian Railroad that he was on? Where did it go? Siberia. That would have been Siberia. My parents, my grandparents, Minsk, Russia, Poland, that whole area there. China to Mongolia to Russia. I went on that in the 70s. So keep going. So you... I was raised in, you know, Houston, you know, Memorial, you know, River Oaks. I was raised in Braze Heights, a Jewish home, went to Beth Yushurin, which you probably know the synagogues there. Grew up in a very liberal, democratic home, although there was great respect for your father. I was very much a child of my generation. I went to Pomona College, dropped out in my junior year, told my parents I was just leaving for a semester, took classes elsewhere, but never actually graduated. When I was in college, because I graduated high school in 1970, so when I was in college, as you probably are well aware, we would like read Ram Dass and Alan Watts in the morning, and I was studying philosophy. I was always fascinated by esoteric and exoteric philosophy. I was fascinated by Eastern. I was fascinated by Western. But in the afternoon, we would go to anti-war rallies. And I was very much a part of the counterculture politically, as well as spiritually, because at that time, it was all one big shift in the culture, and I was very much a part of it. When I found The Course in Miracles in my 20s, that felt to me like my personal direction, not only in terms of the difference that it made in my life, but what came to be a sense that, wow, I could contribute my own 
talents and abilities in a valuable way here. Now, at that time, when I started talking about the Course in Miracles, nothing like that existed as a career niche. So I didn't have any ambition around it. I, at one point, Doro, you might know, the Heights in Houston. I had the Heights bookstore. I got married to a gentleman from Houston, and we had this bookstore. I started giving, not talks, just we would have little Course in Miracles groups there. Then I moved to Los Angeles and began working at a place called the Philosophical Research Society. And that was when I was invited to start giving talks about the course. Once again, I was a secretary. I was a woman who worked in the publishing of this place called the Philosophical Research Society. I loved doing it. It was very exciting for me. I loved the Course in Miracles. But once again, I never thought, wow, this will be a quote unquote career. Like I said, that niche didn't even exist. Not too long after that, however, AIDS burst onto the scene. And many, many people, particularly among the population that was stricken by AIDS at that time, began coming to my lectures. Somebody suggested I write a book based on my lectures. That was a whole story because I didn't know how to write a book. Somebody told me everything you're talking about at your lectures is in those little cassette tapes. You ladies probably remember cassette tapes. I said, I don't know how to get it from cassette tapes to paper. There was a man named Jerry Jampolsky who was a psychiatrist who did The Course in Miracles, who wrote the first book based on it. He said, well, you'll meet someone. I met a literary agent. We did a proposal. And when that book came out, lightning struck. And that lightning was in the form of Oprah Winfrey reading the book and liking it. So at that time, she didn't have a book club yet, but she was certainly, Oprah was Oprah. I mean, I think a lot of young people today don't understand the power of that woman. And I think we were better off in this country when there was that daily town hall of human decency, I have to say. She said that it was the best book she'd ever read, and she bought a thousand copies. And that really inaugurated what would be a career as an author. And of course, I continue to give lectures and have done my best to continue with the work that began at that time. And Marianne, can you, for, for our listeners, explain what is the Course of Miracles? A Course in Miracles has been referred to as a self-study program of spiritual psychotherapy. It's not a religion. It is based on universal spiritual themes that are at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual teachings. You could look at any religion, any great spiritual or philosophical tradition, or any secular tradition these days when people are recognizing living a better life, being a better person is the point of it all. And that if you forget those things, you're not going to do well. It has 365 days worth of lessons. And these lessons are much like what in the East would be called mantras. I think of it like physical exercise. Just like when you do physical exercise, you're building your muscles, your physical muscles. I think of the Course in Miracles as working on our attitudinal muscles, our mental muscles, and strengthening us. Not that the Course in Miracles claims any kind of monopoly on truth. It's just one, I believe there's one truth with a capital T, and it's spoken in many, many different ways, secular and religious and spiritual and philosophical. But the world we live in, and I think this is as true today as ever, is dominated by a thought system which posits us as separate from one another, posits us as separate from any higher power or God of our understanding. And within that delusional frame of mind, 
thinking that we're here to compete with one another rather than love one another, to judge one another rather than love one another, to fear one another rather than love one another. It is as though we are insane. Unfortunately, that forms not only the personal hells of anxiety, depression, and all of the terrible personal dysfunctions and suffering that we go through, but I think that we can see that an entire society can become in the grip of such fear and sense of separation. And so I think unraveling that thought system, unraveling those falsehoods which lead us to believe they run counter to community, they run counter to inner peace, they run counter to love and forgiveness and compassion. And at this point, we can see they run counter to nationhood because they run counter to a sense that, hey, out of many, one, e pluribus unum. And so what happened for me politically, I was always involved. You know, I voted and was active in civic engagement. We're all raised to do that, be good citizens and all that. But I felt that the greatest contribution I could make was as someone articulating the principles of A Course in Miracles. My third book was called Healing the Soul of America. And I was fascinated by applying spiritual principle to what is happening in the country. And also, from the beginning of my career, I was very involved with nonprofit work, particularly when my books were successful. I founded nonprofit organizations around peace, around AIDS, and so forth. But I began to see over the last 20 years, because my career started 40 years ago, but I began to see 20 years ago something had changed in this country. Because when I was growing up, in my world, we didn't have any money when we were like in our 20s, but it was almost like you didn't need to. You could still afford an apartment, you could afford a beginning entry-level job. And remember, in the 1970s, the average worker could afford a car, could afford a house, could afford a yearly vacation, and could afford to send their kids to college. So when I started working with people with AIDS and people who had terrible things happen in their lives, these were moments that, even though it felt like a privilege and a blessing to work with people whose lives were in trouble, it felt as a member of our society that people whose lives were in deep trouble were the exception rather than the rule. And I began to see something change around 20 years ago. I began to see that it became so common that people were living with anxiety and chronic stress that couldn't be answered just by enough charities or enough clergy people. There was something wrong at some deeper level, and that's when I began to feel that just talking from the outside about political issues was not enough. So you started feeling like just talking about this wasn't enough. So what did begin to happen? I would say, you know, people are rationing their insulin. You know, people are putting GoFundMe pages up to pay for life-saving operations for themselves and their children. You know, one in four Americans can't, you know, are living with medical debt. You know, 18 million Americans can't afford to fulfill the prescriptions that their doctors give them. And also, not just because my daughter moved to England, but also I've traveled enough to know that's not the case in other countries. I would say to friends who were governors, senators, congresspeople, and sometimes higher, you know, this doesn't make sense. And I would notice that they'd go, yeah, you're right, you know, it's really terrible. And then I'd say it again five years later. Yeah, you know, that's really right. You know, you ought to form some kind of, maybe you could raise a lot of money and form a lobbying thing. And about 10 years into it, I realized they're not going to do anything about this. 
This is now baked into the cake. And I realize I can write books about it. And the way the system works, they don't mind if you write books about it. And they don't even mind if you make money writing books about it. But don't try to really come in here and change anything. I was reading an article today, and it was talking about Henry Kissinger's 100th birthday. And it was saying something that Larry Summers had said to Elizabeth Warren early in her career. And he was talking about insiders and outsiders. And he said, this is how it is in America. You can be an insider or an outsider. If you're an outsider, say anything you want. It doesn't matter. It's a free country. Say whatever you want, because the insiders aren't listening to you anyway. But if you're an insider, we don't talk against one another. And I began to realize that no matter which political party we were talking about, there's an insider status in this country. If you are within 20% of Americans, and I assume all three of us are, for whom the economy works well, I think we agree on what a blessing it is to live here. But that 20% is surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. And I've seen it, and I think when I went to a non-denominational church, in Detroit was when I came up close and personal with it. I saw people who do everything right. They work so hard and they would get up every Sunday morning and dress their children so beautifully to come to church. And I saw people who had done everything right, loaded with these college loan debts, unable to make it on just one job, not having health care, things that just should not be happening in the richest country in the world. So your campaign sort of the foundation is these ideas that come from the course of miracles. Talk about how personal change relates to policy change. Well, if I may, my political campaign is not based on the principles of A Course in Miracles. My political campaign is based on the principles of the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is one of the most profound spiritual as well as political documents that has ever been written. Part of what's gone wrong in America is too many generations have lost our emotional connection to that document. We find these truths to be self-evident. And then the first thing it says is, all men are created equal. Is that a political statement? Or is that not a spiritual statement? Then it says, God gave all men. God gave all men unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Once again, is that a political statement? That's a spiritual statement. Now, when you and I were kids, remember when we were taught about the divine right of kings, that in old Europe, they felt God had given the king the power. So the Declaration of Independence completely turns that on its ear. God didn't give the king the power. God gave everyone the rights to power. And then it goes on to say that governments are instituted to secure those rights. Not the right of the king, but the right of the people. And then it goes on to say, if the government isn't doing its job, it's the right of the people to alter it or abolish it. That's my campaign that the government is not doing its job. It is not securing the rights of inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Somebody having to put their need for an operation for their child with a life-saving illness on the internet because insurance companies would not allow them the operation that doctors have said is needed 
where is the inalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? You know, there's vision and there's politics. And the Declaration is our vision. The Constitution is our political execution of it. And we can argue, as we do, and in a democracy, we're supposed to, over interpretations of the execution that is described in the Constitution. But it seems to me that if you go generations after generation after generation and the vision, I think of the Declaration of Independence as our mission statement. You have to ask yourself, do you live the principles on which you purport to stand? And if you have too many generations where, yes, we make a big deal, the declaration is, you know, written on parchment, it's behind glass, it's the National Archives or wherever it is in Washington, and it's inscribed on marble, but it's no longer inscribed on our hearts, then people can be fooled and people can be played. And I believe that's what's happened. And that, to me, is why I'm running. If you believe in, like, really embrace the principles of the Declaration of Independence, you can be Republican, you can be Democrat, you can be on the left, on the right. Eisenhower said that the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. There are high-minded conservative principles, there are high-minded liberal principles, the yin and the yang. Nobody has a monopoly on truth. But as long as we realize, you know, the e pluribus unum, and John Adams said he hoped that every year on July 4th, we would revisit first principles. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. We're different people, different sexuality, gender, religion, ethnicity, but we are theoretically united by those things on which we agree to agree. Those are our first principles. And I believe that our salvation as a country lies in going back to those first principles. And I believe that we need someone to articulate them and re-inspire the nation with what they mean. Marianne, do you see that you have a big job ahead of you in terms of converting people to this? How do you see it? Because in a political, regular one, people are sort of attracted to what they believe in kind of thing, right? In changing the conversation, how would you describe it? I think we're good people. I'm not saying we're better than other people, but we're not worse. And I think the average American is a very decent person. My experience, I believe that Americans have an instinctive understanding that this country matters. I have felt for many years that when you start talking about the founders and the first principles and where it all came from, I used to give these July 4th talks. Just when I was giving my course in Miracle Lectures, I'd say, well, it's July 4th, so we're going to talk about July 4th, 1776. And I saw the reaction of people was like children. Twas the night before Christmas. And I would see people like leaning over in their chairs. Either they didn't remember what they learned in the seventh grade or they weren't taught it by an inspired teacher. I don't know. But people were like, yeah, remind me what happened in 1776. When I ran for president before, I saw two different worlds. One world, it's terrible. I'm sure Doro knows it very well. It's mean, it's corrupt, it's the media, the politics. You see things that you say, I don't even want to know that that stuff exists. And then there's the other world, which is the American people and the voters. And that's profoundly touching. So no, when I actually talk to an audience, it's exhilarating. People want to know about American history. People are kind of excited. But there is, I believe, and I think that this has gotten much, much worse since Doro's family was in presidential power, of what I call the political media industrial complex. And I believe that it does 
try to ferret out voices that it doesn't like. And sometimes that has created the space for the worst voices of all. How does politics become more humble and compassionate? How can we make a change? Well, I think that the personality of the president, and once again, you would know this, the personality of the president makes a lot of difference. And I'm not saying the president is everything. The presidency is not everything, but the presidency is a lot. As long as you have a president who seeks in his or her character, seeks to aspire to the better angels of our nature, then we can go to the left, we can go to the right, but there are guardrails of decency. And when you have a character of a president that does not align with basic issues of human decency, then those guardrails fall and all hell breaks loose. I just feel like character hasn't counted or mattered for such a long time in the presidency, but also just in the greater government. I don't know how we get it back. Why all this division? You know, why is everything so polarized from your view? The power is not really in the hands of the people right now, so much as it is in the power of corporations, the hands of corporations. The undue influence of money on our political system has turned our system into little more than a system of legalized bribery. There are many legislators who, when push comes to shove, do more to serve the will of their donors than the will of their constituents because they know the incredible power that is wielded by those donors. And if you don't do what we want you to do, we can easily give so much money to your opponent on the next primary. Or if this is not aligned with what the party establishment wants, we're not going to let you be on a committee or whatever. I mentioned that in the 1970s, things were different. And I'm not romanticizing American capitalism. I'm not romanticizing America before this period. But there was a sense that corporations were supposed to try to be good. Just try. Be ethical. Adam Smith, who was the primary architect of free market capitalism, said that it could not exist outside an ethical context. But we now have what many people call vulture capitalism, crony capitalism, a form of capitalism that is so insistent on its own bottom line profit, that even when that is at the expense of the worker, expense of the environment, expense of animals, expense of the earth, expense of safety, it does its thing like a heat-seeking missile for wherever there can be a profit center. And people on the both left and the right, this is not high-minded free market capitalism at all. This is what's called corporatism. And it leads to monopolies. It actually, it's not. It damages the free market because it's all about corporate monopolies. And people on both the left and the right are seeing this now and naming it. CNBC did a report recently. 70% of Americans report feeling chronic economic stress. One in four Americans live with medical debt. Debt is crippling. When you think of these young people, we still have over a trillion dollar in college on debt. I can't even imagine when I was in my 20s carrying tens of thousands of dollars worth of college debt. I can't even imagine. How can you do that in your 20s? These kids, I, I'm sure we were talking before about being grandmothers. You meet this Gen Z crowd and there's a desperation that American youth aren't this one. Something's really wrong that our young people are feeling so hopeless. Something's wrong. 
And it's become a dog-eat-dog world. Too many Americans are having to live on a level of economic survival. You have one-third of the workforce in America lives on less than $15 an hour. They can't find a place to live. Even 15 isn't a living wage in most of the big cities in the United States. And so people are in this survival mode. Well, you don't have time for your family, for your kids, for your spouse, for your community. And then we wonder where the, like, the mental health crisis comes from. What are you talking about? What's the mystery here? We had the Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, who's so wonderful, come on our podcast talking about, you know, he traveled the country. And I'm curious to know if you have come to the same conclusion in your travels. But when he traveled the country to see what ails America, you know, he was looking at health, but all the things that people deal with in health, underlying everything was loneliness. I'm wondering in your travels, what are the things that you see? as you're campaigning for president? Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Surgeon General. I have met him. I went to one event in Washington that I was part of a few years ago, and he was talking about emotional health. But my criticism of the U.S. government is the following. Yeah, he'll say that. And I'm not saying he should go further because it wouldn't be appropriate. It's not his lane to go further. Could we please no longer pretend that economics doesn't have something to do with this? When you talk about bringing love into your political platform, a lot of people get nervous. Is love weak? I mean, how do you answer these questions when people feel uncomfortable when you talk about that? Doro's brother said if there was a law to make everyone love each other, I would. He talked about compassionate conservatism. I would suggest to you that if a man says it, it's not made fun of. Good point, Marianne. If Cory Booker says it, it's not made fun of. If Al Sharpton says it or Jesse Jackson says it, it's not made fun of. If Cornell West says it, it's not made fun of. It's interesting just in our lifetime, because I think we're all a general, same generation, roughly whatever. We've seen a lot of changes. And we have seen, you and I, the doctor walks in, it's a woman. We don't even think about it anymore. The lawyer walks in, it's a woman. We don't even think about it anymore. The airline pilot's a woman. We don't even think about it anymore. The broker walks in, it's a woman. We don't even think about it anymore. And that's different than when we were growing up. But when it comes to a presidential candidate. That's my experience. We have the highest poverty rate of any advanced nation. We have the highest child poverty rate of any advanced nation. So what happened was that with the child tax credit, they cut the child poverty rate in half. Now, to me, if you could cut it in half, you could eradicate it. Six months later, when it came time to permanentize the tax credit, they didn't do it. So, of course, the rate went back up. So what is love in politics? You pass the child tax credit. You don't cut SNAP benefits. You raise the minimum wage. You get universal health care. So, I, you know, if they're going to make fun of you, although I've noticed if you don't make fun of you for that, they'll make fun of you for whatever they want you to get you out of the conversation. It is tough in that inner world, as you said, the inner political circle. I mean, how are you doing in that? Like, how do you feel? I know, Dora, how you felt a lot. It was hard for Doro to be the person outside watching her loved one be attacked. How are you doing? It's abusive. It's insulting. People are lying about you. People are smearing you. So how does it feel? First of all, I went through it four years ago. So you do get some kind of emotional antibodies. It's like with anything else. Does your heart tell you to do this? Because if your heart tells you to do it, toughen up buttercup. If your heart doesn't tell you to do it, get out of the kitchen. It's hot in here. 
You know, Martin Luther King said, your life begins to end on the day you stop talking about things that matter. A presidential campaign is a platform where we get to talk about things that matter. What a privilege. What an honor. We're a minority of the world's population that I could even be doing this, that you could be doing what you're doing. I try to tell myself sometimes, toughen up, buttercup. Then you get back to the Course in Miracles. When you say your campaign is based, I said, no, my campaign is based on the declaration. The answer to what you just asked, my personal North Star, you know, just like the Declaration of Independence is the country's North Star. The Course is my personal North Star. Who do I have to forgive, including myself? Where do I have to make atonement? It's very tempting, and I'm sure Dora knows this very well. When you feel that people have wronged you, it's very tempting to become bitter, to have a chip on your shoulder. And so you begin, at least I do, to go, oh, this is my own spiritual challenge here. If something happens to you or to your family and it's not right, you have to be careful not to retreat and not to be part of the conversation because you're afraid you're going to get hurt again. And Dora, I know you speak about that a lot because you've been burned. It's like, do I really want to go be burned again? That's how I felt about running again. But if we don't speak our hearts, what's going to happen in this country? I read you talked about, I think it was a study from Stanford, where you talked about the partnership between the brain and the heart. Yes, that was Dr. James Doty. He's a neurosurgeon at Stanford Medical yes. School. And he wrote this incredible book called Into the Magic Shop. Into the Magic Shop, when he was a little boy, he grew up in a very poor family in Southern California. You know, he says in the book that today would be described as every adverse childhood experience. His mother was very depressed. His father was a practicing alcoholic. And he used to try to escape the horror, really, of his childhood circumstances. He had a bicycle and he used to ride his bicycle over to a magic shop. And one day, the man who owned the magic shop, his mother was visiting from, I think, Ohio. And she said, Jim, you know, if you come here every day for six weeks, I'll teach you real magic. And he used to sit there and she taught him what he later realized were techniques of Eastern philosophy and meditation and all the spiritual things that we're all so interested in. Because of these techniques that she taught him, he was able to emerge from the very limited circumstances of his childhood. He went to college, he went to medical school, he became a neurosurgeon, and he ended up at Stanford where he formed with the Dalai Lama a center for compassion. What he says in his book is that doctors have assumed that the brain was the intelligent center of the body. And now he said that they are learning that there's more of a highway between the heart and the brain than they knew before, that there's more of a partnership between the heart and the brain than they previously understood. The idea of compassion, whether you're talking about it from a Buddhist perspective or love one another from the Christian perspective or do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God from Judaism, these principles are everywhere to walk in a certain way through life. And it creates a space that now they're recognizing even affects our bodies. That's why, you know, we've known for a long time, people who are married, they live longer. And when Vivek Murthy, what you were saying, loneliness kills. We were born to be in community. 
You know, it's fascinating. We were talking before the podcast about being grandmothers, and I've just spent the last week and a half of my granddaughter's life just staring at her, watching her need to be with her mommy, with her daddy, to be held. I mean, clearly we are born with this need to be with one another. We talk a lot about relationship health. We talk often about the Harvard study that was done that showed more than cancer, more than any other thing, it's having poor relationships that can be harmful to our health. And so then you go back to what you said before about my running for president. Given the fact that we know, and you're acknowledging it, and you're saying that Harvard has acknowledged it, for God's sakes, that our capacity to form relationships, et cetera, is actually the most important factor of all. Think what it feels like to have people talk about a career based on those things as not serious. Marianne, where do you see yourself on the political spectrum? I know you call yourself a progressive Democrat, but what does that mean to you? I think if there's anything that I relate to at this moment, I think of myself as radically American. Now, in terms of traditional politics, definitely I would see myself on the left. But more and more, I don't think that's the level of conversation that's going to take us home. When you're out there, what is it that people talk to you about? I think we need to make an economic U-turn in this country. We have had over the last 50 years a massive transfer of wealth, $50 trillion, into the hands of 1% of our people. I read a book called Gardens of Democracy, and it said it likened it to how blood has to circulate in the body, and now it's almost like if all your blood went to your one arm. Economic opportunity has to circulate. So if you're in the club in this country, and we're all in the club, it's a fantastic place to be. But we were brought up at a time where the ideal was if anybody works hard enough, they can get into the club. And we are in denial or delusion if we pretend that that's the case now. Look at how many children are locked out of the club by the time they're 10 years old. And so that has created an unsustainable level of income inequality and disparity in this country. A lot of my friends will say to me, I don't know any people like you're talking about, Marianne. And I'll say, yeah, because they don't go to the restaurants that you go to. They don't live in the neighborhood that you live in. They don't stay at the hotels that you stay at. They're not at that resort that you went to on vacation. And even the people who in my party I'm running as a Democrat and the people who say to me, Marianne, don't you understand how important this is and you shouldn't be offering another alternative because we've decided it's Biden. I say to them with due respect, let me guess, you have adequate health care. Let me guess, you can afford to send your kids to college, can't you? Let me guess, you live on more than $15 an hour, don't you? Let me guess, you don't need more than one job, do you? I just feel that this is hyperbole, but it's not. It's almost pre-French Revolution here. People do not seem to recognize how close the rabble is, what they call the rabble, to the gates of the Bastille. And I think that's where Donald Trump came from. You know, in 2016, there were two candidates who said to the American people, your rage is legitimate. The system is rigged against you. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. There was at that point going to be a populist revolution. 
The only question was, is it going to be an enlightened one based on brotherhood and justice, or is it going to be one based on something very different than that? And I believe that that rage still exists. You know, if you look in history, large groups of desperate people form a petri dish out of which really terrible things emerge. Large groups of desperate people form a petri dish out of which all manner personal and societal dysfunction is almost inevitable. And I don't care whether it was George Bush or Barack Obama. I don't give either party a pass on this. Those guys were not looking at what was happening out there. And it's very easy to become walled off. It's very easy to emotionally buffer yourself. I, however, had a professional situation where I'm out there going, wow, what's going on in this country? So I don't see it as party. I see it as system that at this point it's become so baked into the cake that we have to intervene because too many people are in despair out there. And when people are in despair, they become vulnerable to ideological capture by genuinely psychotic forces. And there are some genuinely psychotic forces. Or Dora was your brother that Hillary Clinton, after, after Trump's speech at the inauguration, he turned to Hillary Clinton. Well, that was some weird shit. <laughs> yeah, there's some weird shit out there. Yes. Marianne, so how do you see your path for a successful bid? How have you mapped that out? Well, I certainly understand that, particularly the media, you know, whether it's the president's press secretary making fun of me as though that was a spontaneous comment, which we all know it wasn't, whether it has to do with hit pieces. I mean, it's brutal out there, as Doro knows. But as long as there's the money to support the campaign, as long as there are people who want to hear the option, you know, there's what you can control in life and what you can't control. I can't control what the media does. I can't control what the political elite do to try to peripheralize. I can't control. There's a lot I can't control. But what I can control, as long as I'm in the race, is I can know that I am presenting the American people with an option. And that option is an agenda for a genuine economic turnaround so that it would be universal health care. When we were kids, Blue Cross Blue Shield was a nonprofit tuition-free college. University of Texas used to have it, University of California, tuition-free college and tech school, which once again, both of those, every other advanced democracy, free childcare, paid family leave, which they have in every other advanced democracy, a living wage, guaranteed sick pay. These are moderate positions in every other advanced democracy, and they should be considered moderate positions in ours. Those are the kinds of policies that would just cause such a wave of relief. If it's government's job to secure the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then it seems to me we need some very serious policy changes in this country that would enable the average American to live a less economically stressed existence. When you become president, how do you get those bills passed? The president does not have a magic wand, nor should he or she. We don't want that. This is one of three co-equal branches of government. The president, of course, always hopes to have a House and a Senate that supports you. If you do, you're lucky. If you have it half, you're half lucky. And if you don't, you're going to have some problems. But the president still has the bully pulpit. The president still has the power of executive power, executive orders, 
For instance, this president approved the Willow Project, which is an $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil extraction project that will be on the north slopes of Alaska. Well, you've got an entire younger generation, some of whom, and I'm sure both of you have heard this, younger people who say that under normal circumstances, they would have children. But given the state of the world, they don't think they will. That's not even normal that so many young people are saying that these days. We need to be ramping down fossil fuel extraction, not ramping it up. These are presidential decisions. The president has given more oil drilling permits than even Trump did. I would initiate a mass mobilization for a just transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. I would establish a Department of Peace. Donald Rumsfeld, who worked for your brother, said we must learn to wage peace. I think that when you look at the powers that the president has that are independent of what Congress does, you still recognize that the president has a tremendous amount of power. And once again, don't underestimate the power of the bully pulpit and the conversation that the president has with the people. And I believe that because I've had a 40-year career trying to inspire people, I think that right now, faith in our government, not our government, because I don't think faith in our government is that justified right now, but faith in our principles, faith in our principles, faith in the power in all of us to change our government, because that's what civic engagement is all about. And it's not easy right now, because many of those powers that I have mentioned have their tentacles through their undue influence on our government. But the one thing that can change all that is a real lift in consciousness and civic activism and electoral engagement on the part of the people. And the idea of the functioning of the government, the actual bones of the government, does that excite you that you can get in there and change that? Doro, having had both a father and a brother as president, Doro can back me up on this, but Doro, correct me if I'm wrong. My experience and I have not had as much exposure to it as Doro has had, but I've had enough exposure to it that I realize it's like anything else. It's a bunch of people who sit in a room and make decisions what they want to do. We have this Wizard of Oz idea about what goes on there. It's just people sitting in a room deciding what they are going to do based on which factors they think are most important. I'm not running for Wizard of Oz. I'm running to tear down the curtain. Dora, was I wrong with what I just said? Well, (laughs) I think that's right. I think that's probably right. (laughs) People think it's some mystery. Ooh, you don't know how to run that machinery. That machinery is like, you know, Washington is filled with political car mechanics. That's not the problem. The problem is we're on the wrong road. So when people say, ooh, the technical ability of the government, that's not where the problem is. We need a visionary. You're doing exceptionally well on TikTok. Well, the young people get it. Because you're talking to them directly now, right? It's not just that I'm talking to them. These young ones, and we know this as grandmothers. I mean, we have families. These Gen Z kids were not even born in the 20th century. And they don't see why they should live their lives at the effect of bad economic ideas left over from the 20th century. They have a hopelessness. You know, I remember talking at Stanford. And I remember saying to the students at Stanford, Let's be real, okay? Even with your fancy degree from Stanford, you don't know how you're ever going to afford the house that you grew up in. So when you point out to those kids, this system is not working for you, they're like, hallelujah. And dangerously so. One of my friends said, these kids don't have enough respect for capitalism. And you know how I responded? First of all, how can you be a capitalist if you have no capital? You're not giving them any room to have any capital. And number two, 
I understand it when these young ones say, what has global capitalism ever done for me? And they look at these socialist societies and they say, what should I be afraid of, the free healthcare or the free college? Franklin Roosevelt said, we would not have to worry about a fascist takeover as long as democracy delivered on its promises. The reason we have a fascist threat right now is because democracy has not delivered on its promises. If we had a war against fascists right now, there are too many young people in this country who would say, I don't know if I want to go to war for this. And that is very, very dangerous. You need the majority of your people. And once again, everybody on this call, we don't need to be convinced of the blessings of it because we get the blessings of it. My point to you is 20% is not enough. And you are starting firelight chats. Did we hear that? Can yes, you tell I am. us about that? So sometimes people say, well, what does she stand for? What does she believe in? And I want to create a situation where people can say, well, she's on every Wednesday night, every Sunday night, go listen to her. And what it will be is issues that I think are important so that people know, oh, these are the issues she cares about. And these are the kind of people she would be listening to. So for instance, the first one is about the writer's strike in Los Angeles and why labor is important right now and the history and Franklin Roosevelt establishing the National Labor Relations Board and all of that. Next, it's going to be about some of the women and the terrible things that are already starting to happen in the lives of many women who needed abortions on the level of medical emergency and the doctors were not able to perform them. Another one, I'll talk about the establishment of a Department of Peace peace building. There are four factors which, when they are present, whether it's in a corner of an American city or another place in the world, if these four factors are present, there's a higher incidence of peace and a lower incidence of violence. And those four factors are expanded economic opportunities for women, expanded educational opportunities for children, reduction of violence against women, and the reduction of human despair. These are the ways to wage peace. So every week on Wednesday, I'll interview someone who can help us understand more deeply what these issues are. And then on Sunday nights, ask me anything. So That's so great. That's As great. you said, we can all go on there. Will you be talking about climate change and about biodiversity? Absolutely, I will. And I don't know if as president, I would actually declare a climate emergency because for a president to declare an emergency carries with it a lot. And so you can't look at government action like a meat cleaver or use it like a bludgeon. But definitely, we must make a massive transition from a dirty economy to a clean economy. And if we don't, we could have within 20 years, entire swaths of continents that are literally where the heat is so bad that it's uninhabitable. So you'll have an implosion of the ecosystem, an implosion of the economies, an implosion of the food system. You could have hundreds of millions of climate refugees. You think we have a problem on our border now? Imagine tens of millions, possibly more people trying to leave the global South, particularly where it's deemed that it would be the worst, trying to get into the European continent, North America, et cetera. When we talk about health and wellness, that's just got to be discussed. And you know, that gets into the political thing. Richard Nixon, Republican president, established the Environmental Protection Agency. When you and I were growing up, environmental protection was not seen as a left-right thing. My dad did the Clean Air Act. Exactly. Exactly. One last question, Marianne. How do you stay healthy doing your rigorous schedule? You know, it's interesting what you were saying before about what the Surgeon General said. I do believe that my spiritual life, prayer, meditation, 
doing my best to be the woman that I feel that God would have me be is the greatest contributor to my health. But I want to be careful there because there are many saints who have gotten very ill. So I'm not suggesting that someone who is ill is not those things. I seek to eat well. I do yoga. I have found since COVID that I've not gone back to cardio and weightlifting as much as I should. So I haven't totally gotten back on that, but I'm pretty good about keeping the yoga up. We're in an age where it's not just cosmetic. I used to watch my diet so that I'd look a certain way. Now I watch my diet so that I'll live, you know? <laughs> it's so true. There's something bigger at stake here than there it's used to so be. True. Yes, exactly. So, and I would like to say about the health, if I may just add one thing. One of the things you might remember that I said on the debate stage last time was that we didn't have a healthcare system. We had a sickness care system. And I know with the things that you talk about on your podcast, we absolutely must deal with the toxins like you were talking about, Doyle, in our air, in our water, in our food. We must go back to proper safety and health regulations. When you look at big food, big chemical companies, big agricultural companies, there are so many practices that go on in all of those industries that we absolutely know contribute to ill health effects. So we as a society have to do more than ask ourselves, how are we going to treat sickness? We have to ask ourselves, why are there so many more cases of chronic illness in the United States than there are in other advanced democracies? I want to, as president, be a president who is dealing with the proactive effort to create health in our society, not just an effort to treat sickness once it comes. There are too many elements that do derive from public policy which are almost bound to make people sick. Marianne, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It was so nice meeting both of you, and I I hope I get to see you again. Yes, hope so too. Good luck. Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well. Have you ever done the Enneagram personality test? What's great about it is that it tells you how you are when you are stressed and also when you are thriving. Conscious Leadership Group has worked with well over a thousand leaders across all industries, including CEOs and top leaders of Fortune 200 companies, and they are looking forward to working with all of us at Gasparilla this year to help you with your testing and also to walk you through how to discover the secret of your personality and its dynamics with the ones you love. Call 877-764-1420 or visit the Gasparilla Inn website at the-gasparilla-inn.com to register for this year's November experience.